Well, that's it, it's here, it's out today. The new regs book, which is the new brown book. You'll notice that we've got some paper in front of us. That's not actually the regs book, Richard. No, it's not. So I'm joined by Richard Giddens of the IET. Richard, a little bit about you, just so that everybody understands that you're not somebody that's just sitting here writing regulations <laughs> and, and changes. Um, no, exactly. I'm a practical engineer, engineer by trade, but obviously prior to that, a qualified electrician, come up through the tools, you know, electrical and electrical installation work has been my life for the 40 years or so that I've been involved wow, with. 40 years. Practical person working with practical people in real life, day-to-day -day situations. Fantastic. Now, I know that some of you will be sitting there going, oh, and again, another regs book. We see this change sort of every, <laughs> every three or so years. There is, a, there is a need, isn't there? Yes. I mean, from a contractor's perspective, and I fully get this message, why do we keep having to buy a new regs book every three years? It's interesting. The situation we've got in the UK is our wiring regs are based on worldwide international standards. Mm -hmm. Those standards in the rest of the world are actually available as separate standalone documents. We're looking at this new book today. I know that we don't have it in front of us here, but rest assured there is plenty, <laughs> yeah, plenty yes. of them to, to, to go around. So if you're watching this today on the, the 28th of March, be sure to make sure that you go out and purchase your book from, from the IET and the guidance notes as well, because they would have been updated. Can I just jump in there and add something about purchasing? Yeah. Be wary of counterfeit copies. Oh, okay. The well, IT has been, you know, where not only now, but going back through the years, with any book, particularly books, you know, of a reasonable high value, there are counterfeit copies, or could well be. Look for the little hologram inside. And it's the same on the other, you know, popular publications like the Okay, so that, that's the way that we tell. Yes. Um, so that's an important message as well, like Richard's mentioned there. Just double check that when you are buying your books, you're buying it from a reputable person. If you buy them directly from the IT, if you're a member, etc., make sure that you are getting the one with the, the hologram that sits inside there. Uh, therefore, you will have the correct wording. Exactly. And just to stress, you know, if you buy something that looks like a bargain, that well-known saying, if something's too good to be true, it probably is. If you do come across counterfeit copies, there's some contact details inside that to let us know. Okay. Know, to the detriment of the industry, you know, not only could the information be lacking or incorrect and lead the people working to them or designing to them into an awkward situation, you know, it, the rest of us and all of us in the industry suffer because of it. So look out for counterfeit copies and if there are any, come back to us. So the, the changes are happening. We're looking at this normal transition period that we've got. We, we, we sort of ah. see a six months. Now, I know the draft came out and there was some rumours that they were trying to put a 12-month in, wasn't there, because of um, you know the standards overlapping with each other and people carrying out electrical design over and over again, you know, rinse and repeat an old design going through the standards Absolutely. and actually missing maybe two or three different editions, whether it's Amendment 1, 2, exactly. or a whole new edition. Exactly. Um, what, what are we what are we seeing? What, what's right. actually come out of them? What's the official Interesting. line? Interesting. The official line, and it's documented inside, there's a new term to the wiring regs that we've used, the term withdrawn. Okay. Now, this isn't new to BSI, which is obviously the joint publisher of BSI, because this is, you know, very common for other British standards. You know, electrical contractors and engineers will probably be aware of things like 5839. Uh, 5266, emergency lighting, other British standards, and the use of the term withdrawn. Yeah, now it's interesting that actually you mentioned uh, the other standards there. 
No other standard really has this transition period. You mentioned the word withdrawn, you know, 5839, we'll use that as an example. As soon as a new standard comes out, people have to work to it. So if you're not up to date with those types of standards, uh, then make sure that you are working to the latest that's version it. because if it crosses over that day, that's it. We've both been contractors. Yeah. So, you know, the contractor yourselves that are watching this video today will be sitting there going, right, okay, so I'm working on, I'm a subcontractor. Let's say you're a subcontractor and you're working on a large housing site. What What's their obligation? Where do they sit? Because, you know, there's plenty of competent contractors out there who want to do the right thing. So where do they stand and what, do, what are they detailing on their certificate oh. if they're being told under a contract by the house builder, what is their obligation therefore? Very for good question. Forward? The situation is quite simply this. BSI publish, freely available on BSI's website, um, advice on withdrawn standards and their legal status. There's three or four good, readily available uh, sets of information from BSI. Withdrawn standards do have a term and a, and a position in law. You know, they're often used in court cases and reference, you know, to look at things retrospectively. But the issue is here, working with our Amendment 2, once that old standard is withdrawn on the 27th of September, okay. any installation work that's being carried out, designed or installed, cannot be said to comply with BS7671 once that old standard is withdrawn. In other words, you have to comply with everything in the Brown Book, all right? Where you're in a contractual situation, you know, whether you're a subcontractor, you know, whether you're engaging directly with a client or an end user, it is a contractual situation to make them fully understand where you stand in relation to the timing of all of this and what the outcome will be, particularly if you've got a job that's going on after the 27th of September. And it doesn't matter if it's a small domestic kitchen yeah. refit or a whole brand new hospital build. You know, if there's a chance that that's going to go on after the time that that with, withdrawn standard has disappeared, you've got to make it clear to your client. You've got to make your client aware they're not buying the latest product. Sorry. And any certification that's issued has got to make that clear. Now, you may have seen some of the videos that I've done previously at various other different companies. I've always gone on and mentioned this about the certificates, Richard, and it's vitally important that if you aren't designing the system, so if you're not designing the system, it's important you get the person who is designing the system. This will then hopefully help with the whole situation. So if somebody did ever pick you up on it and you say, ah, actually, I didn't design this system. The people who ran the job designed the system. I've got their signature here on, on the form to suggest that. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at my extent of works, I've noted in there and I've attached and appended the contract between myself and the client. Yes. You're working for the house builder. Yes. So... I think there's going to be a bit of to and fro There, will be. there but, will be. Boy, God, this is a, a big step forward, especially, you know, I've bought a new build. I'm sure you've been into properties where they're not completely up to the latest standard exactly. when they should have been. You know, I think it's it, going forward, it is going to make a massive difference yes. to, to 
the, the end user getting the latest safety devices, the latest standard, the latest practices uh, of doing things as well. And, and just to sort of reiterate and nail the head, it's an issue of communication, documentation, and making sure that the contractual arrangements are clear. Yeah. You know, and it's worth pointing out, particularly with the installation certificate, you know, the three signature form perhaps you'd use on a bigger project. You know, the designer has an obligation, the installer has an obligation, and so does the person doing the verification. Yeah. They're putting their names down and they're dating those things. They are making legal statements. So we can't stress any more that it's a contractual situation. And unfortunately, Jake, as we all know, a lot of these things may have to result in going back through contract law. But mm -hmm. it's something that the people have to watch out for. Just to, we'll move on to the, the parts and some of the changes in a second, but just to, to sort of um, finish that off, this is going to, the contractor's probably sitting there watching this and going, God, I've got to then have dealings with the end user. You know, unfortunately the person that's ordering the works you need to have that two-way communication and make them understand as well you know we've done well sorry i'll rephrase that you've done a certain an amount of work here that's you know gone through all these types of, of hurdles but we can't always do everything that's possible can we you know we, we need the, the contractors help as well to make people educate people now we saw a lot of change when we saw the dpc uh, first hit the, hit the shelves, as it were, um, on the, the BSI website, the standards development mm -hmm. one. There was a period of time it gave you an opportunity to go out there and actually comment on some of the changes that were being proposed. And again, it's vitally important that we have your help as the contractor when, when doing so. We can do so much as manufacturers. The mm -hmm. IET can do so much in steering uh, the committee. But it also does take that from uh, contractors like yourselves that are working day to day out on site. Um, so it is vitally important that you do that. So the next time it does come round, because it will come round, it'll be it will. another three or so years. In fact, you know, I may as well, it's, it's no secret, we're working on Amendment 3 as we speak. Ooh. Amendment 3 work has already started. You know, Amendment 2, as Jake said, went through the draft for public comment process in early 20, um, autumn of 2020. What do we know? 2020. 2020. <laughs> All of last year, 2021, JPEL 64 committee, which was a joint BSI IT committee with the industry representation on it, went through all those comments. No stone was unturned. So, you know, I would make this point, you know, to anyone watching this, when the chance and the opportunity comes to comment, make your voice heard. You know, if you don't, it's no use just grumbling and then, you know, you've, you accept what you've got to produce. Every comment we had on the DPC was listened to, was debated at length. I would say in these rooms, but most of it was done last time through yeah. shutdown and lockdown, yeah, so yeah. it was online. But the process was robust and resilient, and every voice that came back to us, several hundred, were all looked at and debated in depth. So Fantastic. when you've got your chances to have your views, make them known, and they are listened to. Yeah. You know, the J it's just worth pointing out, the JPOL 64 committees are based of a main committee and several subcommittees that do the, the basis of the work, and it's split across the, the REG's book. Those subcommittees, and the JPL 64 committees have all the industry representation on. 
Yes, the IET sits on them. Yes, BSI sits on, but equally the trade associations, you know, the likes of the ECA, NIC, NAPIT, um, awarding bodies, city and guilds, um, EAL, etc. are there, manufacturers are there, specialist areas, you know, like healthcare, um, all sorts of there. Everybody who has any interest with the work that goes into these standards yeah. has their fair say and is able to work on those committees. You know, so it's not just the IET and BSI making rules up, you know, with the international rules behind yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. We, we listen to what the UK has to say. I think that with all the education that we're certainly doing, you know, myself uh, as a manufacturer, IET, uh, I've mentioned myself as the Skullmore Group, but the IET, you know, there's fantastic webinars and, and live seminars out there now where you can get more information about all of this. So it's not, it's not a case of just thinking, oh, we'll make a small change and then we'll, we'll, we'll get a new book out there. It's, you know, there, there is reasons why these are, these are happening. And that, that flows in nicely to some of the changes that we're going to be talking about yeah, today. I mean, ju just to add there, just to sort of finish that, you know, when, when I was coming up through the industry, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, we had that regs book given to us. We had to work with it. As contractors, as practitioners, we didn't know, you know, where it had come from and how it had... Yes, there was an address on the yeah. front, but we didn't have any of the opportunities we've now got to contribute. Most of the injuries, it's fair to say at that time, unless you were working, you know, with, with the big contractors, just saw the regs book. You know, there was none of this business about making uh, your voice known and heard. So... The opportunities are here now more than they've ever been to be part of it and shape it because ultimately it comes back and it's what you as an industry have to work to. Right then, let's start getting into some of the, the changes then, Richard. We, you know, we're looking at part one. No better place to start than part one, of course. You know, we're going to work our way through. We're going to pick up some of the mainstay changes that are, that are happening throughout the book. Um, as I mentioned, I don't actually have a book here. I've just got notes of some of the things that you've presented to me. Um, so the scope, fiber optics cables, we, we saw this being introduced. Um, they're being included in the scope now for one reason only, aren't they, really? Okay. More so, and they're talking about the premature collapse yeah. setup. It's interesting, you know, fiber optics, yes, they're installed in the same way you know they come off a drum they're put into cable containment they're fixed you know they run on trays trunking pulled through ductwork and conduits etc but to many people they're not energy carrying cables you know to many people they don't have a perceived danger they're not going to sizzle away and set fire to your building if they're damaged they're mm. not going to give you an electric shock but as jake has said because of the reasons of containment they can obviously have questions raised over how they are supported. You know, are they going to be supported adequately? You know, if there's fire, are they going to collapse and uh, trap people trying to escape? So the scope has been amended. Subtly, I mean, I must admit, if you looked at it, you probably wouldn't even pick it up straight away, that the supports and the cable management systems that relate to fiber optic cables is now included within 7671. It makes sense. You know, uh, it's a cable. Absolutely. Cable's a cable. You know, what, what's going through it is, is almost an irrelevance. The other thing that's the main change, which we'll come back to probably later, I'm sure, is 
there's now more of an emphasis on this new term that we'll be hearing about, the prosumer installation. There's a lot more on that. There's a new chapter 82 on that, which we'll come back to later yeah, on. But those are, the, those are the main scope changes, but there's lots of other little changes along the way. Okay, so that's part one. There's, you know, not a great amount of changes there, although the, the implications and ramifications off the back of it, you know, are a lot more. So moving into part two, some of the definitions that we're, we're seeing or we, we certainly focused in on, a lot of them were around this prosumer's uh, installation. Um, we'll come on to some of those points, I think, when we move to, to part eight. The big one that I've really focused in on, uh, Richard, is this one about protected escape routes. What is the definition of protected escape ah, route? Right. This partly comes to back to this business about, you know, cable collapse and other such things. And, you know, escape routes has been, you know, the topic of many discussions yeah, yeah, and yeah. arguments yeah. that we've had with the current version of the regs and previous versions. But they've now used the term protected escape route. It's generally an escape route that's just surrounded with a fire resisting material to affect hopefully a safe egress in an event of emergency. It's a dedicated escape route that's got its own, through its physical construction, um, generally a safe escape route. Example would be, if you've got a hotel or an office, you know, the size of this, you know, an escape route can be literally from this desk where we're sitting, out through the doors there, down the corridor, and out through the fire escape. In a building like that, it's relatively simple. Mm -hmm. But if we were further into this building, into the depths of it, you know, or in a large hotel, it's not always clear where that escape route runs. And part of the escape route is the normal, you know, what I would call common or garden escape route. But there are probably at the ends of each corridor, the central stairwells, what we have protected escape routes. And we'll, come on, we'll yeah. come on to the, what needs to go in those yes, protected escape are, routes. There's quite a bit of change on I that. I always refer to them... The, the, you know, as I've done some research and I always refer to them as the, the stairwells that you go in and you think, God, I could have just chucked up a little bit of carpet or something. Exactly. You know, but it's we'll, a we'll, fire sterile area. We'll, we'll come on to There's it. lack of carpet and fancy finishes for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> in that a lot of it burns, but there we go. Yeah. So most of the definitions that we're sort of seeing in, in part two are coming from this part eight. We've mentioned the protective escape route. We'll come on to what actually needs to happen uh, throughout that Part three, no, no real, real change. change. Nothing really in there of any sort. Nothing to write home about, certainly, Nothing anyway. Nothing to write home about or worry about. So we start to move in, into part four, chapter 41, protection against electric shock. The first thing that I must mention is this part about bonding. Why can we not just leave <laughs> it alone? People out there, and again, I've done a lot of research, I've been and spoke to plenty of contractors, they've told me that even if it comes in in plastic, they're still taking a bond to it if there's no re-emerging pipe work. So they've got this isolated piece of metal work and they're still taking a bond to it. Why can't we just clear it up and just say, if it's extraneous, bond it. If it's not extraneous, don't bond it. Right, let's be fair here. No amendment to the reg, and this is me with 40 years of regs working through. No amendment of the reg would be complete unless there was something somewhere about earthing and bonding. And Amendment 2 is, is no different. You're right. There have been some clarifications. There's nothing that's actually new as such, but there's been some clarifications made. One of them is where we've got this business about 
plastic in cameras. Mm -hmm. Very common, you know, with the blue polythene, you know, water mains or the yellow gas mains that come in. And then, as you said, what happens very commonly when it goes off into the building in metal? Do we bond the metal or not? The 18th edition, four years ago, started touching on this subject and they talked about plastic inserts. Yeah. You know? which were there for another reason, you know, mainly from the gas industry. But it raised the bigger question, the more fundamental question, well, hang on a minute, you know, we've got a plastic insert coming in. It's not in any way capable of introducing a potential. Do we, what, what, why do we need to bond the metal bit? The wording has been tweaked. You've still got to consider main protective bonding. Mm -hmm. We've talked about now, though, that where the incomer is plastic, it's unlikely to be capable of introducing a, a, a dangerous potential difference to Earth. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it does actually now say that you probably don't need to bond it. But there will still be questions. That bit of metalwork that goes off into the building, yeah. is it earthy? Is it in contact with anything earthy? Could it be introducing what they now say a dangerous potential difference? So they've brought the words in dangerous potential difference, but the guidance and the way it's written is it's now basically saying, you know, you've got to think, you know, any potential difference that occurs on it, is it likely to be dangerous or not? The reality is, yes, there will be guidance needed. And the guidance will probably be now along the lines of this metalwork that's disappearing, visually look at it where you can. Is it what we call re-entering, you know, the ground, perhaps going out to an outbuilding, yeah. popping up? Is it coming in through the garage as plastic, going back down through the ground, becoming earthy and then coming? It's things like that. Mm. So there's changes to the words but the reality is there's more of an emphasis now on visual checking rather than the electrical checks that we used to have detailed in Guidance Note 8. And you put your hand up, you signed up for yourself to, to reinvigorate uh, that, that Guidance Note. That Guidance Note is, as all of them have been, have been rewritten, <laughs> you know, with the work that we're going on. And they're I just don't available. understand it. I just, you know, from the contractor's point of view, we can sit here and say that this is that this is what it means, dangerous potential difference, etc. We know what an extraneous conductive part is. Is it an extraneous conductive part? If we're unsure, do the test. Do mm, the, the test. The pro problem with the test, though, Jake, as many of our practitioners, including myself, will tell you, the tests that are prescribed in Guidance Note Eight, which we've had in the industry since about two thousand and seven. Um, you know, set out a series of tests that you carried out between the metalwork in question and true earth. But the problem with that is a lot of the industry testers that we've got, you know, mm -hmm. the standard electrician's test kit is not designed to be measuring accurately resistance values in the K ohms range, which is where we're looking for. Yeah. Equally, there's lots of times when this metalwork in itself generally pipework is connected to something that's earth, water heaters, showers, immersion heaters, etc. Boiler, so, boiler manifolds. Exactly. You know. So even though you do the test, you know, which is been in, in guidance note eight, it doesn't tell you anything, yeah. which is why we're generally suggesting look at it more on a visual basis. Is it entering the ground? Is it becoming earthy? It's, it's, it's difficult. The but, thing I wanted to sort of mention, I know we're, when we talk about bonding, we, we predominantly refer straight back to the water side of things. Um, 
are the IET helping the gas industry, so gas safe, with their version of this? Because I've noticed that they sent a bulletin out a little while ago. And for the life of me, I think it's bulletin 109, around that sort of number. And they were talking to their members, suggesting that there doesn't need to be a bond there if it comes in in the plastic that we, we see. What they're saying effectively now is mirroring what our new regulation says. So we are working more towards that common approach. But equally, what I can tell you, the work that the IET does, you know, we're not just sitting here in our ivory towers. We are working. In fact, there is working groups that we have going on behind the scenes where we do liaise and we are all working with the gas industry. I think that's exactly what you as a contractor would like to hear, is that the IET, as the person that's writing these regulations, is having these conversations, going around and chatting to all the other parties and all the other trades, because the biggest frustration I would imagine for you contractors is going there and saying, well, actually, it doesn't need to be bonded because it's not an extraneous conductive part. But the gas man is saying, well, I'm not turning my gas on and this property is not getting signed off until you put a bond to it. We had a similar thing. You can probably remember, I can certainly remember, you know, where there was this distance that the bonding clamp had to be away from the stop tap. Yeah. You know, and the gas industry had a different set of guidance to our wiring regs. You know, and we used to get electricians installing the bond in the right place. And then the gas fitter saying, that's in the wrong place. You know, it's, they it's need to be that. tied together. Yeah. Of course they do. Now, we saw some changes, or we saw some proposed changes around the risk assessment for socket outlets not exceeding 32 amps. We saw this way, way back when we had the label. Oh, you mean RCD protection? RCD protection, yeah. 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 For socket outlets not exceeding 32 amps. We had the label removed for the, the cleaner sockets, the IET, uh, the, I, yeah. the IT sockets. The freezer in the, the garage. Freezer in the garage, yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah. the, the, there was talks of this risk assessment being admitted as well. and, and getting rid of it. Mm, yes, no. Where are we at with that? And can exactly people still use the risk assessment to admit an RCD? <laughs> yes and no. Generally, what we've got is a situation where the draft for public comment was making the suggestion that RCD protection at 30 milliamp should be on every socket rated at 32 amps or less throughout yep. the land. And I think it didn't matter where that socket was or what it was doing. I think, you know, the majority of people will sit here and go, yeah, I understand it. It's a safety device. It, it saves lives. You can't Absolutely. disagree with it. Exactly. Therefore, I think what we're seeing here is the, the regulations being tightened up to ensure that we are thinking about what we're doing and making sure that this safety device is almost everywhere apart from this risk assessment, or no. if there's a type of certain person. type of person this within is, that yeah. property. Yeah, so going back, under the draft for public comment, you know, the original intention was RCDs on every socket everywhere, no matter what it was used for, who was using it, 30 milliamps or less, if it was a socket rated at 32 amps or less. A lot of comments came back on the DPC making very valid points. The big ones we were getting back, hundreds of comments were being made of the same here, issue here. You know, what about server rooms? Mm -hmm. You know, big computer rooms, control rooms, where you've got equipment which by necessity, because of the way it's manufactured and provided, comes generally with a 13 amp plug on it and needs to plug into a 13 amp socket. Mm -hmm. What happens if an RCD nuisance trips or develops a fault? and you lose 
critical equipment. There were all manner of very good examples, you know, as to why RCDs on every socket would be a bad thing. So there was a lot of discussion and it all stemmed back really, the crux of the matter, to the type of person that would be likely to use a particular socket. Mm -hmm. All right. The requirements have been redrafted. Effectively, we're now using this external influences category of persons, BA1, BA2, BA3, etc. And if you look in the appendices, you'll see the definitions of those persons. Yes. BA1, for example, is an ordinary person, generally oh. uninstructed, you know, someone who would come in off the street, uh, your, your domestic premises, no background or knowledge or skills because they don't need them in electrical safety. So we, we as today, you know, I know that this is your building, the IT's building at Savoy Place, but me as somebody coming in here, you know, we've got cameras set up, we've got lights plugged in, etc. I would be an ordinary person, deemed as an ordinary person in this yeah. building. I mean, because for example, the sockets there, as you say, Jake, you've come in and you've plugged in your sockets and camera equipment. Yes, the fact that you, like I, have an electrical background is an irrelevance. Mm. You could be anybody who comes to this yeah. meeting room. You could be just plugging in your mobile charger. So those sort of sockets, ordinary persons or children with the schools issue, there's a requirement for RCD protection. Mm -hmm. As indeed there are for disabled persons and disabled children. Those are the categories. Now... The other type of category is what we call an elect, uh, instructed person, yeah. all right? Now, that would be a different situation. You could have, for example, an electrical maintenance workshop or um, a computer server room or um, you know, some other control room which has the need for the socket. But the only people who are allowed in there, normally because of the way the facility is controlled, physical control about who's allowed in there and who's not maybe those persons that are allowed in there are electrically skilled mm. or instructed and in those cases it's a different category of person so what effectively the new reg is saying is rcds on all sockets please 30 milliamp 32 amps or less but where you've got the sockets that can only be used by the electrically qualified or instructed people, then a risk assessment is allowed to permit the RCD protection to be omitted. Okay. Now, there's a very good point here, you know, and again, thinking back to the discussions, the risk assessment, the electrical designer has to be party to this, not just someone who's there, you know, wanting to save money. And I think this is the question I was gonna yeah. sort of allude to really, it was, who carries out this risk assessment and who has to sign it to right. basically sign it off to say that this risk assessment is acceptable? The risk assessment has to be carried out by a person who is electrically skilled. In other words, it can't just be a client who's put in their name to it, giving it to you as the installer saying, I don't want to pay for RCDs in all these school classrooms. Yep. Dump. It's got to be an electrical qualified skilled person who can foresee the risk and if you were, if i was being asked to design that you know and sign that risk assessment i would be thinking right okay you've told me yes you've got that server room in there but how do i know that you know your it man may come in and he may not be electrically qualified yeah. or skilled
you know, or you know, someone else comes to do some repairs, or if it's a school. And that was another point, actually, that came in discussions. I think the whole thing about these RCDs and the necessity of it is it they are a safety device. They save lives. That, that we can't emphasise that enough with with those types of devices. No. Do you really want to be putting your name to a risk assessment as a contractor that admits a safety device? I certainly wouldn't. A want contractor, to. and I, I understand that there's certain or even a situations, yeah, certain Design. situations where the, you know you will have to admit them, and I get that and you have no problem with the risk assessment, but using it as a get out, I think is a different scenario yes. completely. So. And it's interesting on, on the bottom of that new reg, you know, and this was aimed at generally, you know, the schools and, and we were, you know, rightfully through some of our JPAL representatives having, you know, feedback that there were designers of schools, mm. you know, doing rooms for kids and pupils and computers that were being told, nah, don't want RCD protection in there because we can save X amount of thousands of pounds by not having them. You know, the room will be all right because the teacher's electrically qualified. You know, it's making a point that an ordinary person, possibly the teacher, who, yes, who may be, you know, skilled in, you know, a bit of IT. Or wire plug. <laughs> no, yeah, well, even though people don't do that now, surprisingly. <laughs> but they, for the purpose of this reg, don't become an electrically skilled person. So it's been tightened up, but it's taken in a lot of good discussion from all sectors of the industry to hopefully nail it once and for all. Now this this one, next reg, 411.4.2, we're talking about additional earth electrodes. <laughs> yes. The draft of public comment would have sent the industry absolutely mental if, oh, if it came in earthing. about the foundation yeah, earthing. Yes. Instead, we have this, this part of the regulations um, regarding an additional earth electrode. So it's, it's almost kind of similar to what we would have saw if foundation was earthing was there, but we're asking now for an additional earth electrode. Does this tie into part eight as well? Partly, yes, Partly. a big part. Let me, let me just give you a bit of background. You're right, the DPC was talking about foundation earthing. Yeah. Foundation earthing was effectively, you know, when a building was constructed, as its name suggests, put into the foundation some sort of cast-in-earth electrode, copper tape, strip, mats, plates, what have you. And, you know, when those foundations are cast, you have, you know, the copper tape sticking yep. up that someone, sometime later, the electrical designer or installer connects to. But the reason, what was this all about? Two reasons, partly because of the, the new Part 8 prosumers installation, which, as you'll hear later, effectively, under certain operating conditions, doesn't permit us to rely on the earth provided by, say, the existing DNO. Mm -hmm. You know, all that supply may be uh, disconnected. But also, you know, there is known in the industry that there's big issues on what we call the broken pen conductor. You know, and we, yeah. we've written quite a few articles, a colleague of mine and myself, you know, and there's quite a lot of work going on with the IT about the situation of the broken pen conductors. Mm. You know, a lot of PME, you know, let's just be, you know, plain and simple here, you know, in contractor's language, you know, the PME system were the neutral was effectively providing an earth return path on an LV distribution network. That system came in in the late 1960s. A lot of those cables, even if they were new then being put in the ground, are coming up 50 years old. And they, they'll fail, you know, they'll corrode equally a lot of other systems that have been converted. 
to PME. We've got systems of pen conductive failure, which can cause all manner of dangers. So partly the requirement for the foundationary thing was to um, assist with that, build a resilient LV network that isn't rely on all that. But equally, as you've said, a lot of it was from part eight. So we're, we're not looking at foundation earthing. We're looking at an additional earth electrode. Yes. What's the reason behind ah. the additional earth electrode? Very simple. The additional electrode, and this is only a recommendation. Okay. Just be clear here. It's not a shall in our wiring regs terminology. It's a recommendation. So we're not talking TT systems. So we know what that means as the contractor. Mm. Well, <laughs> I'll leave that one there yes. and we'll carry on. So yes. carry on, yeah, TT systems. So we're not talking TT systems. We're talking where you have an electrode anyway. Yeah. We're talking TN systems. In plain okay. English, TNS, TNCS in the real world. It's basically recognizing that even a lot of TNS systems are actually, because of the way they're connected, got TNCS characteristics. Somewhere between our property, a house maybe, and the substation, the cable may have been replaced, you know, with maybe a three core yeah. cable instead of, you know, the traditional four. So it's a TN system problem, the broken neutral. The foundation thing, yes, in theory would have been great, but the practicalities of it was the issue, which is why it had to change. You know, definitely. Who, who's, who's around generally when the foundations are being poured? At the, and many times the electrical contractor or the designer might not have been appointed, you know, might not have been designed. You know, if the ground workers are putting in the electrode, who's to say they're putting it in properly? Exactly. And when the electrical design comes along and the property is built and being wired and tested and all you've got is that little strip of copper, you know, what if it is just literally a strip of copper? It's, it's too late. Yeah, so yeah. there are a lot of practical issues. We did an awful lot of work through working groups and subcommittee involvement with this, which is why the reg has ended up, well, we'll use the word second best, but, you know, it's a step <laughs> in the right direction. Let's be positive yeah. here. I think it's fair to say that we'll probably will see this at some point. We know What's going it's on building with it. for the future. Yeah. It's, it's recognizing the pen conductor issue isn't going to go away. It's only going to get worse. And prosumers installations will be coming our way big time in a few years time. Yeah. It's all about that. So the next thing that's on the agenda is chapter 42, thermal effects. Now this part was the most eagerly debated section Absolutely. of the whole regulations. Now we're going to be talking about a device that's expensive. It has the ability to save lives. We're going to be talking about AFDDs. Right. The recommendation came actually in the 17th. Yeah. Was there was a small, small little wording in there. Then we saw it moving the 18th and we saw it a recommendation to certain locations. What is going on? What is happening? Because I'm eager to anticipate right. this one. In plain well. English, as many of us suspected, and as Jake has said, it was eagerly debated. The, the meeting with this one was discussed for half hours, as you can imagine. And there were lots of very good reasons put forward for the yep. pros and the cons. Cutting to the chase, AFDDs shall, which in wiring regs land means must, yep. be provided on AC final circuits serving socket outlets up to 32 amps in the following 
areas. Okay. Ready? Higher risk residential buildings. I'll come back to that. Okay. HRBs. HRBs. Yep. Houses in multiple occupancy. HMOs. Okay. Purpose built student accommodation. Yep. And care homes. Okay. So if we just break that down a little bit and in some sort of language for contractors to understand and the reasons why those types of locations is it because they're not familiar necessarily with their, their, their surroundings, the ways out, the way that the system works? It's a little bit of that, but a lot of it is due to the fact that the fire risk or the consequences of fire in those type of buildings are higher okay. than other buildings. You know, yes, people will talk about Grenfell. Yes, people will talk about, you know, there was a well-known fire incident many years ago in an old person's home. Yes, HMOs, you know, we've all seen these examples of HMOs where all sorts of fire safety yeah. issues come into play. So those areas, and it doesn't matter, you know, where we're talking HRVVs, it's the whole building. It's not just above. So what's, what's sort of the definition no. of a high-rise? No, it's interesting. Again, a lot of debate on here, and you'll see a note under the new reg. Currently, the definition of an HRB is a building in excess of 18 meters or six stories, whichever you hit first. Yep. Right? Yes, tower blocks, etc. But you know, other buildings as well that meet those criteria. You know, the fire risks of the fire happening and the consequences are more severe. So but we recognise, you know, particularly with well, what was the Grandfell inquiry, which is still you know going on in the background and changes, you know, under the fire safety requirements, that that definition may change over time. Mm -hmm. But currently, HRRB was defined as more than 18 metres or six, six storeys. It may change in future, but the HRRB definition is, is what it is. Yeah. Yes. So the other areas have just been recommended yes. still. So I'm in thinking all I'm other areas, you know, your house, my house, socket circuit, you're supplying more than uh, sockets less than 32 amps, etc. It's a recommendation. So it's another one of those situations where you have to sit down as the designer, as the contractor, offer it to your client. You know, it's being, you know, from a contractor's perspective, it's more chance of profit. There may be some clients who want it. There'll probably be an awful lot, particularly in the domestic level, that don't want to pay for it. Yeah, they yeah. like the protection, but there are the opportunities there. So again, good practice in any well where it's a recommendation. Record somewhere on an email, an estimate, quote, what have you, formal letter, anywhere that you've at least offered it. So it's for socket outlets, what about other aspects of the, the installation now? So lighting, your fixed equipment, so your cooker circuits, your showers, etc. Where does it leave those types Currently, of... the requirements and the words, and remember the word shower, and it's all very black and white, it's socket outlets. So, lighting, again, without going into too much detail, AFDDs, that's just saying work better when there are certain higher currents flowing. Yeah, so, a lighting circuit, you know, particularly with LEDs, you know, there's an issue that they might not work as they should. Um, I'm not quite sure what the manufacturers take on why they're not on power on high power circuits, but the issue is 
generally it's socket circuits where there's the risk of the equipment also mm -hmm. having the fault on it. Because of course, being at the origin of the circuit, it's not only protecting the circuit wires, it's protecting what's plugged yeah. in and operators. We could we could go on and, no, um, and discuss a, a, yeah. I mean, just just for you know, you'll you'll know how as well. But our ones that we're testing at the moment are uh, our fault protection devices, which will be in the market very shortly. Um, you know, they need a two amp uplift yeah. and a constant over a constant time. So, for a lighting circuit, you know, many domestic certainly properties. Probably won't even get Probably two, even get two, two amps. Two, two amps is near enough 500 watts, 500 VA. You could light your whole house with LEDs and be nowhere near that. Exactly. So there's good reason why they're generally green put on sockets at the moment. Hopefully we don't see people going out there and just car blanching it and just saying, right, I'm just going to fit AFDDs because they will be wasting, wasting this. Exactly. And it's also worth pointing out that an AFDD by itself, you know, Yes, it protects the circuit and it's looking for the certain sort of footprint of a waveform, you know, where there's an arc or a loose series or a parallel arc. You know, it's not always going to be protecting against overload or short circuit or residual current. So it's in addition. An AFDD, you know, isn't, oh, we'll have that instead of RCBA. I always it's, say it's, it's an addition. I always say it's like the, the, the full circle now. So we're, yeah. we're protecting against series and parallel arcing. We've got SPDs, we've got MCBs, and we've got RCDs yeah. or RCBOs, and that is the full circle. And depending which manufacturer you go to, there's different solutions. A lot are now working towards the one module, which, yeah, yeah. which a few years ago was the big problem. Um, but where we are pushing down the one module with, where you can get one which serves the purpose of an MCB, an RCB, and an AFDD, that would certainly help in the smaller boards, you know, where there was always a right for question being raised about the size of yeah, the yeah. and the practicalities of installing Definitely. Yeah. So okay. we come back to this protecting the skate route. So we mentioned the right at the beginning when we took a look at definitions, this new one about protecting the skate routes. We spoke about the definition of it. What does that actually mean for the contractor when they're working in these um, Let's call it a stairwell, for example, now that doesn't have a carpet in it. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll keep thinking of that. It's yeah. The carpetless, the the, the carpetless staircase. Um, what do we do as a contractor? Right. First and foremost, let's be clear here. Maybe you're a contractor doing design, or even you're an MNE consultant doing design. That, and this isn't a disrespectful comment, doesn't make you a fire safety engineer. Correct. So first and foremost, what this new set of requirements is saying is this whole concept of fire safety and the additional requirements is the electrical designer has to work in conjunction with those other designers. Yes, you know, in the past when I did M&E consultancy, we would have the architect and a structural engineer and a QS and possibly a fire you know, engineer involved. A lot of smaller projects, it doesn't happen. But sometimes even in larger projects. So first and foremost, as an electrical designer, what the regs are basically saying is, bottom out, when you're given these plans to work to, from the architect, right, Mr. Architect, which of the protected escape route? And who's get, doing the fire risk assessment yeah, as well? Get, get the pens out and say, right, that's the protected escape route from there to there to there. These are first and foremost, because it's not always known, but an architect's one of the main architect's duties is to sort the fire rooms out. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not often considered you know, that that's what we should be doing. 
but they are. If they're not providing the information to you as an electrical designer, keep on pushing for them. Or in an existing building, perhaps where there isn't an architect, keep pushing for the fire risk assessment document. Find out where these escape routes are. Is it a normal escape route? Is it a protected escape route? When you've got that information, our new appendix 13, 13, yeah. easy to remember, unlucky for some. Think of 13, you know, unlucky if you can't escape. Mm. That's how I remember it. Appendix 13, at the back of our new amendment too, gives a lot of practical advice about what should be being considered. It's basically saying, don't put other things in there apart from the absolute essential for fire safety issues in terms of wiring. So really the only wiring you ought to be seeing in there is fire alarms, lighting, emergency lighting, possibly cleaning circuits. Certainly not being used to take data cables up, yeah, yeah. cables, you know, punching through walls into other rooms. Those sort of issues. There's fire stopping. There's the practicalities without going into the details of the standards applicable about the um, non-combustibility or the problems, you know, with insulated cables and yeah. uh, wiring uh, containers. Practical, one rule that stands in my mind, common sense. It says ferrous metal, i.e. steel conduit, is considered to be a low snow condition. So it's almost saying, think about those rooms. Yeah. So, yeah, your own carpet escape room, Plain and simple, nothing that's not related to the safety services. You consider that you know you want to keep those areas fire style. Yeah. Perfect. So that's cleared that out of protected escape routes. I'm sure that people will have a few more questions, but as Richard's mentioned, there, Appendix 13 um, will be the one that you need to go to for the guidance there. SPDs. Ah, yes. Okay. So let's just get this clear. We had Again, a lot of confusion about it. When it came in the 18th, we had the risk assessment that probably, if we took 10 contractors, I would suggest that nine of those contractors didn't understand how to do it or um, just fitted it because they didn't want to do the risk assessment. We had the indents at the top, which said you shall fit them in these locations. The, the things that I want to ask you, Richard, what's happened to the risk assessment? And what are the indents now? Right, okay. Taking a step back even before that, we live in the year 2022. Mm -hmm. Every installation, everywhere, whether it's the smallest little one-bedroom flat or a building the size of these IT offices, has inbuilt into the electrical installation, as well as plugged into it, electronics. Mm -hmm. Everything I look at in this room, without question, has got electronics in it. Electronics, as we all know, we've probably all got stories and tales to tell, don't like unstable you know, mains voltages, they don't like voltage excess, they don't like surges, transients, those sort of issues. At best, your equipment, you know, maybe it's jam and the old you know, IT trick of let's switch it off and switch it back on, if you're lucky. You know, I should have been an IT engineer, I'd probably <laughs> use that very useful knowledge um, but no joking aside yeah. electronics if you're lucky yes it will malfunction but you can get it to work again if you're unlucky it's kaput it's mm -hmm. on the tip it's in landfill in many cases so like it or lump it SPDs being required in the regs in certain cases to protect that sort of equipment yeah now 
Under the 18th edition, we have what we call the Calculated Risk. Which shall call it the Risk Assessment. CRL. Yeah. Um, which you needed as an electrical designer to know about, you know, the type of cabling coming in, you know, the length of it, the, where it went to on the substation, the HV feeders, etc. A map that you, you gave you facts from. And yes, it gave you, if you did a calculation, you know, not many people like to the car, but I like to speak as the industry as it is, it gave you the sort of direction to go to. Either you put them in or you put them in. The good news for everybody is that calculation is now gone. Oh, hey. All right. Yep. In its place is a new reg, which once again says shall. Yep. All right. SPDs shall be provided where you've got three indents. The risk or the consequences can lead to serious risk of human life. So that's lots similar, of to, similar to what we saw previously. Yeah, medical locations, hospitals, operating theatres, yep. you know, life support machines at people's homes, those yep. sort of issues, is one in depth. Failure of a safety service, now let's be clear here, it's a safety service as defined in our part two. When you look at part two at Trent on our book, it's basically plain English, fire alarms, emergency lighting, firefighting equipment, phase, spring phase evacuation. Possibly yeah, phase and operational alarm, fire alarm systems, so, yeah. voice alarms. And the third indent, rather interesting, significant financial or data loss. So it's going back to these data centers and big computer rooms. Yeah, and canary wolf exactly. and like that. Just on that second indent then, so if you're not fitting SPDs currently, when this new change comes in, after today, if you want to immediately, or you want to wait till the 27th of September to, to take this up, we, it's fair to say you'll be fitting SPDs. Yes, because the other bit of the reg, which we're just going to come on to, those are the three indents where you've really got to put them in and you haven't got a choice. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, you've got to sit down with your client. You know, one person's serious data losses, I mean, it could be one Different, person yeah, working yeah. at home. You know, well, I know, I know a couple of computers. Yeah, I know a couple of guys that have a, a, a small hard drive and that's literally their whole, their whole business on that exactly. one hard drive. Granted, they've got it backed up, but if they were to lose that thing. So, again, it's the electrical designer sitting down, communicating with the end user and the client, saying what they're all about, mentioning what it is, and saying, for example, this data loss, you know, is this going to impact it? I mean, let's talk it clear and pretty simple. These things, SPDs are going to in price. Yeah. The cost of one SPD can save an awful lot of grief. Yeah. As well as the three indents, it says protection for all other instances, so this could even extend to the small domestic dwelling, shall, meaning must, be provided unless the owner of the installation specifically says, after being made aware of the risk, they can categorically do not want them. So again, it's sitting down with the client, outlining the risk, outlining the reg, and saying, this is what I can offer you for this much money, this is what it will do, do you want it, do you not want it? I mean, speaking from a, from a manufacturer's point of view, you know, we're certainly seeing our costs come, come down on the SPD front as they're fitted in the board as standard. You know, I think for the contractor, like yourselves out there that are watching this, I think you will just think, do you know what, I'm just going to fit it in the enemy. 
to have that conversation with a customer um, that has little to no knowledge can be a little bit tiring, a little bit difficult sometimes. And uh, just just to add to that, Jake, you know, going back to this business of you know communication, I know um, quite a few of the trade associations that we work closely with, you know, have little standard templated disclaimer forms. Yeah, yeah. You know, where you could almost you know drop down your name, the client's name, what you've discussed, and what instructions you're. So anything like that, as a designer, can help protect your liability. Yeah. There's just one other point I want to briefly mention on that. About SPDs, you also need to consider. It's not a sham. It's a consider. Yeah. Where there's the likelihood of voltage fluctuations caused by things in the installation, switching surges, transformers, motor starting, etc. Yeah. Which is is not new, but you know it hasn't ignored those risks are still there. You've got to consider, you know, the the regs as Now we're moving into part five. Um, <laughs> this next one is quite an interesting one. Section 514 is about identification and notices. Yeah, yeah. Just to give everyone else a bit of background, I bought a new build, um, and I won't name the name of the company, I bought a new build you know, over a year ago. And would you believe it, there was no circuit chart on the way consuming it. That was sat in my downstairs toilet, open to, you know, everybody for everybody to walk in and see. The labels have needed to something to happen to them for some time, mainly because not everybody's fitting them anyway. So what's the point of them? Are people looking at them? You know, we, uh, as, as electrically skilled uh, individuals, we understand that these systems need to be tested after a period of time. However, the, the standard person in a domestic household or in a commercial aspect, look at their installation and go, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with it, I don't need to, to, to test it. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot by this change where we're lo losing some of the labels in domestic household premises? We are and we're not, but with all these things, there's a bit of background and there's reason and logic behind it. You know, many years, from before many years, rather, I used to do a contractor assessment for a well-known trade association, and I would get taken to see contractors work that they perhaps yep. done in the last 12 months or so. Very often, a lot of them were domestic properties. Yeah. Very often, like your house, they were new build. And the consumer unit, you know, in the modern house, it, it wasn't tucked in an understair cupboard or down behind the pantry or down in the cellar. It was more than likely, you know, either in your cloakroom near the front wall or in the hall even. And let's face it, that contractor that had done that work had followed the rules, he required to put, you know, the RCD test label, maybe the colour mix label, but certainly the periodic inspection label, as well as other information. Yeah. And those labels, you know, it was all, it was a joke for years, you know, the boards are having to get bigger, if nothing more than all the labels. You've got, you've got and more, more labels on there than Exactly. Yeah, you know, they're all different sizes and all different colours, you know, and that's, you know, apologies to those contractors that were, you know, a bit more conscious, but some of the labels were stuck on, you know, they weren't necessarily square or they were peeling off the edges. Yeah. And it was quite common, particularly when those boards were on the show, that the householder peeled the labels off. Or yeah, yeah. painted over them in a number of cases, emulsioned over them. I don't want bright yellow labels staring me in the face when I come into my nice smile. Those sort of yeah, issues. Yeah. So what we were finding was in the real world, either the labels were being put on but were being painted over or taken off, or in some cases were being instructed of the contractors not to put them on. Anyway, what we've done is in domestic 
or household similar properties, the requirements for the test retest label, the RTD test label, that actually label now for obviously, um, I think it's SPDs, yep. and also the circuit chart requirement, as you mentioned, in domestic or similar properties, provided that information is included on the certification. Right. And this is when we come back later, you'll talk about certification, yep. there's notes on the back. What that requirement is made in those altered regs now is it's saying, well, you've got domestic or similar, and the model certificate is being used has got the business about the requirements for those things, then you don't need to provide the labels. In all other installations, you do. Now, yes. we know exactly what happens to the certificate as a contractor. Even when you turn up to, to do your EICR, I'm sure the certificate is always there. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we already know what's going to happen here, and we know that the, the, the EICR, when you come to the EICR, there's going to be no certification there, or next to none, um, or it's this manky old bit of paper that's... But know, as with all these things, you know, the certification, you know, has been issued, the contractor should have kept the copy, which is always there, you know, if he yeah. or she needs to prove they've done it right, you know, you can't control what the client does, you know, as I say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it true. Now, under, under this section, we've got identification of conductors. Oh, I've yes. heard that red and green are coming back. Yes, interesting. Those of you old enough to remember um, will remember we lost red back in 2004, 2006, and then the fixed wiring became harmonized. Those of you even older, and I can myself, I can remember green. I remember taking green, green out. out. And I remember adding to green. I still, you know, messing around in junior school when the regs changed in 1977 to go to green yellow. But you're right, Jay. The red has come back on certain DC power circuits. Okay, so we're not going to see it yeah, in our everyday. No, on AC installations, it hasn't. On DC power circuits, red has come back in, and the table with all the conductors yep. has changed. And if you look closely at the bottom, you'll see that for um, certain self circuits and control circuits, green, the single colour green has come back, only for those conditions. Interesting. So, yeah, interesting. But there we go. Not likely to see it move into any other... Don't who knows? Don't who knows? I'm watching that Ferris wheel coming down, but I can't see anything. <laughs> uh, chapter 54, um, looking at high protective conductor currents. Yes. This is more... Uh, more of an interesting one than the actual, you know, a, a must or a shower, etc. There's always been two, or not always, there's been two terminals in the back of socket outlets for a long period of time now. From what I'm reading and understanding is that we're actually seeing that being removed. Yeah, I mean, the issue of high protective conductor currents, you know, first sort of appeared in the regs and, you know, contractors' radar. Back in the 90s, I think it was the 94 edition or amendment of the F16, where it used to be a special location, 607. You know, then it became mainstream because it's something that you get in any installation. Yeah. But there is a requirement still in the regs that where you've got a circuit that under normal healthy conditions can be carrying a protective conductor current, it's normally, you know, due to electrical filtering, switching over power supplies, dumping, you know noise down onto a CPC as a drain. But all of that can add up. And, you know, 
it's quite common situation on a bigger circuit with that sort of equipment or a bigger building where it all manifests itself back at distribution modes. That can become significant, which is why there's that suite of regulations that talks about certain minimum sizes, alternative conductors, so if one breaks and snaps off, you still got the path back. Yeah. That's still there, but they've tweaked it slightly, and the requirement I think you'll find for the double terminations, either at the board or in accessories as has, has been modified, but the requirements are still there for the rest of it. Yes, I mean the risk is still there in fact if anything is getting bigger. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Also, got a note here to, to mention about bonding to outbuildings. Is this in the conductor conductor sizes? Yes. Now, this is a requirement that where you've got an outbuilding, you know, whether it's a complex, you know, office, factory units, what have you, or even if it's a domestic dwelling, you know, perhaps with a, a garage at the bottom of the garden, you'd have effectively a distribution circuit, the, the sub name as we used to call it feeding the remote building, except for PME, where those conditions apply, where we've still got to you know, select any bonding conductor from the table. In other systems, TNS or TT, the reg used to say that any bonding in the outbuilding would need to be sized in accordance with the main bonds and the main requirements for the main installation. It's now been tweaked in its common sense. You know, certain trade associations rightfully have been, you know, making this point for clear for years with designers behind them. You know, in the outbuilding, perhaps you have got something that's bonded. Maybe it's a little metal frame garage, or you've got a little um, workshop or something at the bottom of the garden. It's got perhaps a little water main or gas supply down there. You know, and there is a service that needs main bonding. What this is now saying is, unless it's a PME system. You can size that bond in the outbuilding based on the size of the CPC and the distribution circuit, not the main supply. Yeah. So it's a bit of common sense. Yeah. Um, moving on to chapter 64. So testing. Testing. Verification. Part Initial six. Verification. Initial verification. Yeah. Um, Insulation resistance testing changes. Oh, I wouldn't call them changes. We still have a requirement to do. 500 volt test to make sure that the cables are being stress test. However, it's more so about when we're doing yes. them, isn't it? You know, in guidance note three, if you read into it about insulation resistance test, it actually talks about doing the test during upholding large cables. You've done a lot of work with MI cables, as we've um, we, we found out last night when we was having a chat. We always tested them between before we did any connections to ensure that whilst we pulled that in. It's perfectly fine. I think contractors need to understand and need to change their ways of working a little bit to reflect that. I guess. I mean, where this is coming from, insulation resistance has been talked about for some years now and how it should be done. The problem is, unlike many years ago with a simple insulation where you could literally walk around for a few minutes, take the lamps out, unplug things, switch other things off. You know, do the test at the mains, 500 volts, all done, you can take everyone happy. In the real world, we've got electronics, vulnerable equipment embedded in the circuit. It's not always the load, it might be something controlling the load, 
you know, it could be things, you know, such as lighting circuits, you know, where you can't just take the lamps out because the electronics are still there behind it. Of course, with LED, it's all part of the Yeah, it's, it's not it's not a case of just taking your, your yeah. GLS lamp out or your bayonet, Edison screw, etc. They're all in built, you know, look yeah. around in here today. Oh, but dimmer switches on circuits, yeah. you know, Drivers, all sorts. Um, so what it's actually saying is that, you know, as just mentioned years ago when I used to do a lot of MI work, you know, we talked to anyone who's done mineral insulated and put the pots on. We used to test each section of cable. You put the pot on one and the pot on the other, measure it out, you know, carrying others as manufacturers available, of course. <laughs> and you do an insulation resistance test as you have, then you connect it. It's almost saying this is where we're having to go now. Now, there's an awful lot of people out there who say, oh, it's going to take a lot more time. Yes, but the fact is, it has to be done. And if everybody is doing it to the regs, it's a level playing field, yeah. right? So it's a two-stage thing. You know, you're doing an installation resistance test as you're going along. During installation, in other words, that you've correctly picked up on, then, as you know, many practitioners will tell you, me included, we've all been there, sometimes in the second fix, you know, maybe trying to get those things back into the back boxes, even if the back boxes are deep enough. Um, you used to say that you haven't just you know, nicked something on the lug or, yeah, or yeah. the back screw. So there's emphasis on that. Plus, I will just add in the requirement, which is new but missed by many, make sure the CPC is connected to the earthing arrangement. So you get any fortuitous connections to the building rather than back through a conductor also being picked up. So yes. Appendix three it looks at R C D testing. I think I picked this one up when I was looking at the draft and you know R C D testing and the times. What's happening with those? Because the, the, when we saw the 18th come out, we had this whole who are we did a one times test, do we do the five times test? Are we required to do any testing at all? Um, where are we at now? Some good news for contractors here. This has actually been simplified. First time ever. Yeah, you've, um, done, you've done some, done some simplification. <laughs> but for, for good reason. Effectively, the only test that is actually needed, regardless of the type of LCD, is the times one test. Okay, the times five test isn't required, the times half test isn't required, neither is the round test. You may want to use them for yeah. fault finding, you know, if it's you know, nuisance tripping or you know, where it's going. Unwanted tripping. Unwanted tripping. There you are, you did remember what I said. Those sort of issues. But it's times one that we're interested in. And you know, for those of us that have done those tests over the years, you'll know you do it each half cycle and you record the highest value. And that's why, you know, when you look at the model forms, there's only one column. The number of questions that we keep getting asked, you know, why, why is there only one column in that table? Mm. Where do I put the times half test or the times five? It's not needed. And this applies to all the RCD types. But it's interesting that you mentioned about types. I know we've gone into, into part six here, but there was some rumors about RCBOs being the best way to comply with the unwanted tripping uh, regulations all to do with um, the earth leakage that we're seeing on there. So we're sort of seeing the 30% rule with a 30 milliamp device, nine milliamps. If that was the case, we didn't have to 
split them down even further. Um, so we're seeing that fall under there, saying that RCBOs basically yes. have a way to go, aren't they? There's a, there's a alteration on some of the wording, but it basically says, you know, for domestic and similar properties, the use of RCBOs is recommended. Not a shout. It's not a shout. It's a recommended. We know what happens. We know what happens, though. But equally, any of us who've been called back to a domestic dwelling, you know, where you've got a dual split or worst of a probably a non compliant, no single RCB in the whole lot, you know, trying to fault find. You know, an RCBO tripping is taking you straight to the circuit. You've got, you know, less chances of it going out, you know, on protecting conductor currents and cumulative earth leakage. But when it does go out, A, it's going to. not affect as many other circuits or possibly come into danger, you know, some critical things are lost, but it also enables you to find the fault Just wrapping up on RCDs, because I know we've not probably touched on this as well, is the AC RCD. That was muted in the, in the 18th edition, now we're talking about it being general purpose um, and using it for general purpose. What's happening with that? Because most of the manufacturers, ourselves included, we actually only provide a type A or better now, um, are we just sort of saying that they're gone? Effectively, we are. Um, the just for the background to this, you know, the Type AC RCD is the original, you know, RCD we've had for forty or fifty years that that works when it's working properly on a nice, clean, healthy sine wave where the residual current waveform is a clean sine wave. In real world, we don't. Uh-huh. It's all the electronics to put it on an oscilloscope and that way you can work with it. Those sort of faults can blind an AC yeah. and RCD. In fact, that principle was used in a well known test instrument manufacturer um, that used that technology and they had a trade name for it, which enabled us to take a loop test without tripping the RCD. It would temporarily saturate the RCD, and while it was blinded, Effectively enable a high current to pass through it and you do a loop test. Now, exactly, there you go. Um, the Time AC RCDs, they haven't been you know, written out of the regs, but their use is really now restricted where you've got effectively what you know as the electrical design to be a totally resistive load. So it's not going to own sockets because you can't control no, it. No, no, no. It's a fixed installation circuit. Possibly electric heating, possibly simple filament lamps, you know, with no things like you know, dimmer control or automated yeah, control. I mean, it's, it, the... it may have its I mean, possibly night storage heater circuits, you know, as long as they haven't got electronic controls, you might be able to use it. But really, the default type of RCD I guess the question is the, the type A. I guess the question that the contractor wants to know about is what happens to the systems that have this in, which have electronics. What, what's the ramifications off the back of that? You know, you're going to go in there and, and do an EICR, and you want to understand, is that of danger? There is DC components on there, there well, is the leakage. Okay, without going down the rabbit hole of EICRs in too much detail, <laughs> but answering your question succinctly as I can, contractor goes along, finds a type AC RCD, perhaps you socket outlets on it, or things with electronics on it, and he's thinking, right, it doesn't meet the requirements of the current regulations, doesn't necessarily mean the installation is unsafe, but what's the likelihood of the danger? So it's probably not unsafe while he's there, it's not tripping off while he's there, but it might not trip 
portrait when it should or it shouldn't. And you'd have to look around. Someone doing the ASL would be thinking, oh, okay, what a socket circuit. Oh, they use a lot of electronics in this. Oh, crikey, everything's electronic. You know, that RCD might not trip when it needs to because all this electronics are saturating it. And it would probably be wise there. Again, it's a thin line judgment. It's the judgment and the expertise of the person doing the inspection on the day to consider it's not a C1, I don't suspect. Is it a C2 or is it a C3? I think you would. Would you maybe actually test that RCD? I know when we look at testing our RCD, we like to isolate the circuit, you know, the circuits from there and actually test the device itself. But would it be wise of you to test in situ you could and try. then you could understand the readings yeah, that you're getting? Yeah, you that would be one way. In of fact, sometimes, you know, this is sometimes where, although we don't need it in the regs, the running test is useful. You yeah. know, there's a lot of many uh, instances I can relate, you know, where we've had nuisance tripping issues in installations, unwanted tripping. And, you know, we've done the tests, you know, with different loads plugged in, and we put the ramp test in. And we found, you know, by the time everything's plugged in, you're almost right on the limit of either it going out because of protective conductor currents or possibly not going out because it's being blinded. So, yes, you could look at it in that, but I think in, in plain and simple terms, you have to consider, you know, what the likelihood of, you know, these electronics and, should we say, non-resistive, non-linear loads being plugged in is all about. Moving to part seven then, we're looking at special locations. We've got... There's a lot of changes and a lot of small changes in a lot of sections. So we could just probably pick out a few that, you know, there is some sort of bigger changes. 702, 701, you know, those types of places, the self and pelve issues or changes. 703, again, self and pelve, construction, cable protection, bits and pieces. 710, medical locations. It's quite a niche market, really, isn't it, for, for medical locations. I know that um, certainly we've got some products and some medical uh, solutions that we offer, but it doesn't ever seem to like, just absolutely fly off the shelf. I mean, the, the changes that we're seeing here is to do with the medical IT systems, lighting circuits, and equipotential bonding bars, or earth reference bars, as they're known mm. as, all to do with, with the access. What's the thinking behind Okay. The changes in there, 710. Um, I think it's fair to say within JPOS 64, we're blessed with the subcommittee that does this particular section that we've got several UK experts on mm. the medical locations. You know, they're guys know the stuff at the back of their hand, they're up with all the changes in the rest of the world. 710, since it appeared so many years back, is almost now. A little set of the regs that could almost be his own book. Mm. It's well written. Well, I mean, there's a there's a guy that writes his own books on there, yes, well, isn't that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, changes in there, obviously, you know, based on what's going on in the industry. You know, the, the, there's health technical memorandum, health technical memorandum documents that are being referenced in there, which are the design guides for those sort of people that are designing it. It's mainly aimed at the consultant. Mm. You know, there's very few, I guess, small contractors, you know, doing that sort of work. A lot of it is in the, in yeah. the, in the, in the, the M&E offices and consultants. So, um, 
There are a sprinkling of changes, you know, as you've said, there's quite a bit of change in there about the usage and the design and the detailing of IT systems. We're not talking information technology, we're talking generally, you know, when you've got an earthing system that's isolated from an existing earthing system. There's quite a few changes there about lengths of circuit, isolation transformer, types of transformer. There's mention in there about certain types of socket, the blue sockets that you, you talked yeah, yeah. about earlier that you, you have um, and where they're used. There's also talk in there about, as you saw there, about lighting, you know, and emergency lighting and duplicated supplies and how the circuit should be arranged to be overlapped so that if you lose a supply in a critical area, you know, you're not putting you know, the heart surgeon at risk and all those <laughs> sort of issues. Um, so there's quite a little bit in there about detailing design. So again, you know, someone who's involved with any of those projects, you know, needs to really get their head around it. But like I say, it's easy to follow. Perhaps something I probably should have mentioned earlier at the beginning for anybody's benefit. Any changes in the amendment are indicated with a little sidebar down the margin. Yep. So you can open the page, your favourite page that you work in, and where you see a little vertical line in the margin, that's change. telling you that by the side of that line, the text or the reg that's there or the information that's there is different to the blue one. Yeah. Yeah. So again, if you're into 710, have a look through it. There's little bits in there of detail. The earth thing about our business, yep. again, you know, I was involved with that discussion. It's about where it's being provided, for ease of being able to access it, but equally there are big issues about infection. It's not a case at all, you know, we'll put it above that ceiling tile there, it's where it needs to be, it's within the right dimensions and the requirement, but you, know, you take that ceiling uh, tile down, there's probably the lightning of dust and debris out there, no matter how fine, you know, finding its way into areas where we've got specific. So there's a lot of practical things there, but 710 is well written, and you know, if you're in that sort of work, it's relatively easy to follow. It's a nice little section of the road. Yeah, so it's right. 712 then, solar PV, there were some rumours and some changes in the draft that were... Yeah. <laughs> this section Seven, looks like it's had a massive... Up. 712, you know, well, like I said, how long have we got there? Um, cutting to the chase with it, to the point. 712, because of the changes to the international standard that we're obviously the harmonisation document that we're obliged to follow the technical intent of, 712 has had major changes to it. So if you're involved with solar, solar PV, you've really got to get your head around 712. There are lots of changes in there. Yes, as you suspect, there's probably things, additional requirements for surge protective devices, considering the DC side of things, you know, earthing and bonding, RCDs. connection of inverters, RCD types. But the main changes, I suppose, if somebody said to you, well, what, what is 7.12, is it's recognising now that, you know, unlike the traditional grid-connected one, where we've seen, you know, we work with an industry where it's basically sitting on a, uh, a DNO grid in many cases, you know, feeding back into the grid, a lot of 712 is being rewritten, has been rewritten, to recognise that it could be part of a prosumer's installation, it could be a standalone system in its own right, or it could be you know, part of a duplicated supply mm. situation. So there's a lot of rethink on it because of those three main parameters, but there's also quite a bit of detail in changing 
was recognizing that the industry is moving on. You know, products are being developed, inverters are changing, the way they work is changing. So it's an update. Um, I've got to say, if you're involved with solar PV, there's a lot of study. Yes. Outdoor lighting, we saw that, obviously that terrible event with the, the small oh, trials. Oh, in Essex, in the pub. Yeah, yes. um, so we're suggesting that RCDs are being wrapped up in that part. Yeah, there. that's generally for, you know, outdoor places that are open to the public. You yeah. know, pubs, beer gardens, parks, things like that. I mean, it's somewhat surprising, I suppose. That they're not on there. That they're not on there, yeah. but, you know, it may be down yeah. to unwanted tripping and things in the past. But, you know, as you said, unfortunately, that incident over in Essex a few years back, you know, where the child was in the pub here, I've got the electrical stuff, a low level light, you know, by some rain in a planter area. Um, RCDs, as we've said earlier, same lines. EV charging. Now, we saw the amendment come out, of course, and it, it sent that part into. Um, it just blew up again, didn't it? We had all these changes come in, and all of a sudden, um, we're, we're working completely different again. Well, we um, are and we aren't. You know, with all these things, the industry evolves, the products evolve, we learn. In industry, you know, we, we learn from, you know, I wouldn't say mistakes made, but, you know, difficulties that we've encountered along the way. That's another reason that the regs change. Um, summarising what's going on in electric vehicle charging, not surprisingly, one of the issues is this whole business about using a PME supply um, to charge a vehicle outside the potential zone. Those of you that do EV charging, hopefully, you know, will know that there's a number of indents where we're allowed to um, consider using PME for an outdoor charge circuit, provided that certain options are selected. And it was all about, we talked about earlier, this pen conductor failure. And one of the issues, or one of the indents rather, was, you know, if we were, had a three-phase installation, where the, the phase balance was reasonably well arranged, effectively, that would hold the neutral somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Those of us that went to the college and did vector maths and that sort of thing, vector addition, will probably remember it and the headaches it caused. But it was all about phaser diagrams and, you know, oh, God, dear. as long as, you know, you, you could prove that in an ideal situation with a balanced three-phase installation, it doesn't need a neutral, you know, which is why electric motors were around the neutral. But that option, or trying to use that option to, you know, provide a neutral that's, you know, where it needs to be if the pan conductor fails, is so heavily dependent on that installation continuing mm -hmm. to be balanced. And in the real world, particularly if it's an LV network, you know, perhaps a, a drive, a roadway down a, a residential street where you've got a substation up there, and yes, you've got across the phases, all the balance, it's all balanced out. There's no way as a designer you can keep it balanced. Even if you've got a building with its own substation and LV network. Theoretically. It's, it's, a, it's, it's great. It's another one of those things that's great in practice, yeah. but in, in reality, it's a headache. Yeah. Those of you that have struggled will be pleased to know that indent has been removed. I don't think anyone's that anyway, to be honest. Probably not. No. So some of the changes that we've seen in part seven, seven two two EV charging, Something about the conditions for PME. Oh yes, um, those of you that know Chapter Seven Two Two, 
will be aware that the, obviously the problem or the perceived problem or the risk of using PME to charge a vehicle outside if there's a pen converter for mm -hmm. in other words we lose the neutral and that's why there's been a series of indents in there. One of those indents was considering that if you had a three-phase installation and could maintain that the phase balance through vector addition you could effectively demonstrate that the neutral was referenced in the middle, not necessarily by the pen conductor, by the, by, by the, by the, right, the yeah. phases. The problem with that is, although it's ideal, uh, it's a, a situation you know, in the real world, trying to achieve it is practically impossible. You're not always in charge of what's going on in your own installation. If you've got a three-phase installation with your own supply and transformer, it's even more of a problem if perhaps you've got a series of single phase or even three phase installations, but there are other consumers, sorry, other consumers on that network between you and the transfer. Yeah. You can't be accountable for what their names are. There was that issue, and there was an issue about um, the requirements for uh, making sure that the product standards that are relevant, you know, either a British standard or a harmonized standard for the equipment, is you know able to be shown and proven. We've seen a lot of innovative products come onto the market, yeah, definitely. and you know when you sort of dig deep down to you know check that it's complying with the standards that are being asked of it, it's not always apparent that it is, and probably in some cases it might not be. So as a designer, it's effectively saying, watch the standard that you're looking for. Is it properly equivalent to the British standard or the harmonised standard that it should be, because in many cases it might not be. There was a tiny bit on the end of chapter 722 about where we've got some of those protective devices you know, that are looking for the PME fault conditions, that if you've got it on a prosumer's installation, and that prosumer's installation is, for whatever reason, disconnected from the reference uh, DNO supply, You've got to make sure that the manufacturer of those protective devices are effectively saying that they're suitable to work on the consumer's installation that may be being fed from a difference. Okay. Yeah. Now into chapter 80, or chapter 82, chapter 82 so yeah, part yeah. 8, probably the word I was looking for, um, about prosumer's installation. You as the contractor out there doing your day-to-day -day work, are you going to be looking at this part in particular? It's probably fair to say that at the moment you might be, if you've got an installation maybe with solar PV on it, you would yep. be effectively a prosumer. In fact, let's just define this. It was one of the new terms. Prosumer is obviously a mix of the words producer, consumer. It's like when they changed the PlayStation 4 to the PlayStation 5. Literally, also did to the logo to change to four to a five. Yeah, so there you go. Exactly. <laughs> we just combine the two words. <laughs> so, a prosumer's installation is one that's traditionally, you know, pulling in electricity and energy from, you know, typically a DNO, but a distribution network operator, and consuming it, light, power, heat. A producer is an installation where you've got some form of either your own generation, typically solar PV, might be wind, and there are other technologies, may even be battery storage. So a prosumer's installation is one that's doing both. Mm -hmm. And effectively, 
the basic principles are you can have a two-way energy flow. You can be pulling energy in from the network when you need it and aren't producing, or maybe when you are producing, you can be sending it out, or even you know, a mix of both. So prosumer installation is certainly the way things are going, will be in time. So we're seeing, seeing a lot of um, recommendations, a lot of guidance in there. Probably on your day-to-days at the moment, you're not going to be dealing too much within chapter 82. Do you think we maybe see uh, Appendix 17, I've got that down here, move back to 81 at some point? It may well do. I mean, Appendix 17 was obviously the energy efficiency requirements, which came out under the 18th edition, which, you know, at one point could have been into a part eight, but ended up in an appendix where it still is. Um, it's not you know, exactly the same. It may have a part as a chapter 82, but currently it's an informative appendix. Yeah. But under prosumer's installation, in plain English, there are some basic requirements, which effectively are regulations, particularly about protection, you know, recognising that if you're not coming in with a supply from a DNO source, it may have a, um, a higher earth loop impedance, you know, the characteristics of circuit protection need to be considered for that protection to work. Those sort of issues. Um, earth thing, as we mentioned earlier, that if you're not on the DNO network, effectively you've got to have your own earth, which yeah. is where foundation earth was coming back from. So there are some basic requirements that are set out in what would appear to those reading it to be regulations, which they are, but equally there's three appendices under chapter 82, which give a lot of um, background information, shall I say, about the different types, you know, whether it's all happening in one installation, whereas where it's, or it's a collective situation, or a shared installation, where perhaps you've got a number of consumers linked to either their own generation or common generation, or, you know, a mix of all three. So, yeah. it's, it's good background reading, it's setting the scene for probably where we'll be big time Predict, but, you know, Three to six years, years yeah. Maybe. Now, moving into appendices, not too many changes. Um, appendix three obviously can change because we've spoken about the RCD trip times. Yes. Uh, appendix four. Which was appendix four? Change the cable. Uh, oh, yes. Appendix four, that was an interesting one. It's not actually anything new. We've just moved from another part of the regs the requirements for the derating factor you know, where you've got cable going through thermal insulation at different lengths, you know, up to 500 mils. So it's not new information. It's just changed. It's just in a different place, yes. Uh, model forms, what's that? Model forms. The, 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 the big one was the schedule of items inspected. Wasn't yeah, it? Saw I mean, in, the, in the draft. The schedule of items inspected has had some tweaks made to it. Um, the schedule of test results and the schedule of circuit details, because the whole thing over the years has grown with all these extra yeah, columns, yeah. you know, we can no longer readily get it on one page. Those two forms, the information there is now split over two. The first part of it is the actual circuit details, the circuit, the wiring, the circuit protective device, etc. ratings. And then the second page that follows on, very similar to some certification bodies which have you know, used yeah, the pages for many years anyway to yeah. physically give you the space to run. But of course, you know, we've had to add extra columns in there. We've got things like AFDD, you know, a requirement that has been tested, and SPD. So by necessity over the years those forms have changed. And as we hinted about when we were talking about the labels, the requirements 
information for the end user that's on the back of the forms or the information that you know could be on a label you know testing the rcd you know the testing the retesting is now on the back of those forms so to anyone looking at the forms they'll look pretty similar but look a bit closer and there's a little change or quite a few lots of little changes yeah i mean there is a few changes to, to the rest of the appendices Again, nothing too uh, major. If you want to get your hands on, on the new book, have a chat with the guys at the IET, visit the website, or um, there's lots of shows that are going to be happening event-wise. So you've got you know, your ELXs, your ETA events, all the bits and pieces. These guys will be uh, at most of these events, I'm sure. Um, so if you don't have your book already, please be do sure to go and get it. The other um, thing, just to add to that, Jake, is obviously, most regs, you know, the users of the regs need guidance. The on-site guide and the guidance notes that generally go with it are generally will be available, you know, pretty soon. Yeah, we would. There, there have been instances in the past because of the way they've been produced where there have been some quite significant gaps in time. But all the important guides, the guidance notes are available as well. The work on them was going on, you know, as the regs themselves were being written. And we were almost waiting, those of us that were authoring the on-site guide and some of the guidance, you know, waiting for the, the final gavel to go down on the words of the yeah. regs so we could make sure our guidance was you know, right yeah. because things were being done you know, at the same time. So that information is there. So I want to say a big thank you for watching this and taking the time out. Hopefully it's been sort of some use and whether you start on the, the today on the 28th of March using the new brown book or you want to wait until the, the 27th, make sure that you keep up to date with all the changes. I'm sure the guys at the IET and uh, myself will be doing a lot more of, of this interaction of webinars or seminars uh, around um, the new changes that are happening. If you want to know more from ourselves at Skullmore Group, you can go to SGTV, like, subscribe, and share some of the videos that are happening around there. And we do appreciate the time that you spend with us. For now, myself and Richard, thank you, Richard. Thank and we look forward much. to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much. much.